Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Toronto Blue Jays off yesterday. The teams they're chasing in the wildcard race off yesterday. Somehow those nerds over at Fangraphs take 0.6 percentage points chance of the Toronto Blue Jays making the playoffs off the board. That is, of course, because the Seattle Mariners beat the Tampa Bay Rays. And there are these small, small, small scenarios where Texas and Houston catch Seattle, uh, but Seattle stays just ahead of the Jays. So they're still kind of relevant, but mostly a day off in the American League wildcard race. It was not a morning off if you've been following the FIBA World Cup. Unfortunately, Canada basketball lost at 445 this morning to Serbia in the semifinals over there. Uh, Dan Schulman pulling the ultimate double duty this weekend. So this game was at 445 Eastern. He's going to be back on the Blue Jays call tonight. He's doing the Blue Jays game tomorrow. And then Sunday, he'll do a 445 a.m. bronze medal game. And then the Blue Jays game in the afternoon as well. He's a machine. He's the best. Uh, He is not on with us today because uh, I think we need to load manage here. But he's surely watching the game we're watching in the studio right now, which is Germany uh, potentially beating the United States here. They're up nine in the third quarter. Uh, Canada will play the loser of that game Sunday morning at 4:45 a.m. for the bronze medal. Canada's never medaled at the World Cup on the men's side. Canada losing and having the 4:45 a.m. game though means that you don't have to hear me talk about basketball on Jay's Talk Plus today. I'm not live watching the game and reacting to it and we're not talking to Dan Schulman. Uh who we are talking to though, we're going to go through this American League wildcard race. We're going to kind of use the off day to reset the picture here for these final 22 games for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, joining me from the score is Jonah Bierenbaum in studio for the hour. Jonah, good morning, buddy. Thanks for having me, pal. Uh, so Blue Jays off day yesterday. We get the kind of and an afternoon game the day before. So we've had like as close to two days as we ever get on this show to really take a breath. And the kind of feeling I'm left with is, Man, the 61.3% chance of the of making the playoffs when I look at the Fangraphs odds this morning. The fact that they are 77 and 63, the fact that they're even in the third wild card position here and in a spot where they mostly control their own destiny from here in terms of making that playoff spot. Looking back at the last 140 games, the last 160 days or so, that reality is incongruent with how everything is felt. Uh do you feel similarly and what do you make of that? Yeah, uh, they're very much alive in spite of themselves. Uh, And I think what this recent surge, if you want to call it that, six and three against some wildly (laughs) inferior teams, uh, reinforced that you just can't quit this team. And I think a lot of people were tempted to as recently as last week on August 29th, uh, per fan graphs, their playoff odds were a season low 38.3%. They were three and a half back of the third wildcard spot. They had just split their first two games with the Washington Nationals. Ugh. People were getting ready to write this team's eulogy. Well, just over a week later, in spite of the injuries, in spite of everything, they're in a playoff spot following a 6-3 and three run. Their odds, as you alluded to of getting into the postseason are roughly 61%, better than 50-50, and they more or less control their own destiny. What a difference a week makes in this game and in this world of the expanded postseason. Uh, The Blue Jays are very much alive, and their recent surge, again, if you want to call it that, I think epitomized what the season has been. It was often frustrating, but never a dull moment, and just successful enough to stop you from disengaging and from writing them off. It's become a bit of a trope the last couple weeks because Arden and I ran through it at one point, and was like, yeah, it really like they haven't gone on any runs. It feels like they go four and three every week. And then you play the math out and four and three would get you to 90 wins, maybe a wild card spot. And then 
things don't work this way. But if you went four and three every week in the playoffs, you'd win the World Series. If you went four out of every seven in the right order. So, um, yeah, I, I think... Look, I, I think that this last little stretch also epitomizes a part of the season in another way, which is that this team is unquestionably good, but they have not been able to find the gear of being great. And that is even true during a lesser point of the schedule where, you know, even if they sweep the Royals this weekend, the easiest 15 game chunk of their schedule and one that included four last place teams, they would have gone 10 and five on it. And if they only take two against the Royals, you know, nine and six is good, but it's not great. And it does feel like something has been left on the table. So I think you're right in that this team has had a lot of frustrating stretches or moments where, you know, maybe you think about closing the book on them or, or writing the you googly, uh, <laughs> as it were. But there have also been just as many moments where they play pretty well and you start to think, oh, they're going to be a reasonable baseball team. And then the rug gets pulled out. And I don't I don't mean that in a dramatic sense, because, look, you're going to lose. You're not going to sweep everyone. But, yeah, you only took two of three against Oakland, against Colorado, against Washington. You lost the series to the Guardians that you really needed to win before the Guardians even got all those reinforcements that they got. So while you can't quit them, it's also seemed like they haven't been able to establish themselves as look consistency is, is an important thing it's a good thing to have but you also want to see some semblance of upside how do you how do you navigate that kind of emotionally or narratively the fact that yeah you can't quit them but also like they really haven't given you any full reason to believe in the big sense yeah it's tough and i mean i think that in a season that's been so devoid of an extended stretch of dominance or even what feels like e any big breaks for the Blue Jays, it feels like they've just constantly been sort of fighting against the forces of the universe. Other than the health that they had up Indeed. until the last couple of weeks. And particularly on uh, the pitching front. Um, what I would say is that, you know, going into this stretch uh, without Bo Bichette, without Matt Chapman, they could have easily crumbled. This could have been the end of their season. Instead, they get reinforcements from Buffalo and they proceed to turn it on. Like this is a team that has struggled to deliver consistently offensively this year. Well, since August 28th, which was their first game without Bo Bichette and without Matt Chapman, they've been one of the best offensive teams in baseball. They're averaging more than six and a half runs per game over that span. And that's with a largely decimated lineup and with minimal production from Vladimir Guerrero Jr., from Dalton Varsho, from Whit Merrifield. And that's largely because their numbers with uh, runners in scoring position have started regressing to the mean. Well, regressing past the mean. Indeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're compensating for five months of being but well that, below the mean. That's not how regression works. So that is the gambler's fallacy. You know, I, I, hey, I've been so cold. I've got to have a hot streak coming. It's no, I've been so cold. I should get back to 50 50. <laughs> well, this uh, is why I don't make any money gambling. Yes. Um, the other element of this, too, is like, yeah, sure. The, the major league middle of the order, top of the order guys have not been delivering but all of these triple-a call-ups they just keep hitting off of guys they've seen in triple-a all it's year true. because you played oakland and colorado and, uh, and washington washington who i mean washington put some good starters out there in that series but yeah it's been not uh i mean even this weekend like yeah you're gonna see cole raggins who's the hottest pitcher in baseball and we'll tee that series up a little bit but like the guy they're seeing tonight has an ERA of six in AAA and has walked as many guys as he's struck out. And like, he's never made a start in the big leagues. Yeah. And for and his So career, he's going seven shutout. Yeah, exactly. And for his extremely brief major league career, he's averaging maybe six strikeouts per yeah. nine innings. Colin Snyder. We'll, uh, we'll get into Colin Snyder later. But yes, you're, you're right. The offense has come around a little bit, um, even if we make the quality of competition caveat. 
Um, they have gotten some contributions from guys a little further down. Now, I, I think it's reasonable to have looked at this stretch and been like, well, if they had Bo Bichette, if they had a more reasonable version of Matt Chapman than we saw before he hit the I.L., Danny Jansen doesn't fracture his finger. Um, you know, maybe there was a situation where they go on a run here. Now, I don't feel great about that because, again, it's bad competition and you didn't go on a run when you had all of those pieces healthy all year. I want to throw some quick research by you. Please. And I think this, you know, this gets to, I guess, the feeling the feeling we're trying to contextualize here, which is that you'd think from the vibe and the energy around the team that this is not a playoff team and that things have, well, yes, everyone would acknowledge the division was the goal and that's not going to happen. It's been a disappointment in that front, um, but they're not necessarily as bad as it sometimes feels on Twitter or on Jay's talk or, or whatever. There are a number of teams. There are still 16 teams for 14 playoff spots that have at least a 10% chance of making the playoffs per fan playoff odds of those every single one, except for the blue Jays and Minnesota twins. And the twins are a fake playoff team because they Yale central, every single one has had at least two winning streaks of five games or more. Almost every team comfortably in a playoff spot has had three or more. And many have had four or more and five is a pretty low bar. The Baltimore Orioles have had winning streaks of five, five, seven, and eight. Tampa Bay's had six, seven, and obviously 13 to start the season. Texas has had a five-gamer, a six-gamer, an eight-gamer. Uh, Seattle's had a pair of eight-gamers, and you can kind of go down the list like that. The Jays have won six games in a row once. That was in April. Hasn't, haven't had a, a five-game winning streak since. Haven't had a win six in seven stretch since July. There is, I mean, obviously there's a cost to that in the standings, right? Like there is a reason that the Jays are in the third wildcard spot instead of a top wildcard spot or fighting for the division. They haven't been able to string those together. Even Boston, who are just kind of statistically, they're not really in the wildcard race still, but they're still kind of hanging around. They've had winning streaks of five, six, six, and eight. Everyone has gone on more streaks, again, except for the Twins. Everyone has gone on longer streaks and more streaks than the Toronto Blue Jays. What do you attribute that to, especially given, like, if this team were made up of last year's rotation, say, where you've got three guys who are pretty steady, and then the other two guys in the rotation are who knows what you're getting start to start, I would understand. I would say, yep, that makes sense. They won three out of every five. You know, there are some weird stuff happens when you have good starters, and then you have a couple bad starters. This year, it doesn't really make any sense at all. And, like, yeah, Alec Manoa fits that criteria while he's with the team, but this team has five really solid starters. They manage the four man rotation stretch very, very well. What do you attribute to their inability to kind of go on one of these runs? Because it, it feels like a lot to just say, yeah, they've only had one six game winning streak and nothing else over five games. And then you look and like, this is the chart. Like everyone has had a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre, but I also think that that's just a reflection of the randomness of baseball. Like the Pittsburgh pirates played upwards of 600 baseball for the month of April. Is that a reflection of the fact that they were a 600 team? No, but in this game, uh, randomness has an outsized effect on outcomes. Um, and I think that that is certainly a contributor, but also it's a reflection of the fact that they just haven't been able to produce offense consistently. Like I think they've their sequencing was a little more blessed this year. They would have gone on an extended streak and the entire narrative of this season would be completely reframed. Like if they had three or four more wins right now, 
And if they had managed to get those wins through a little bit more sequencing luck, a little more Babbitt fortune with runners on base, it feels like a very different season. I think the vibe surrounding the team is dramatically different. Uh, just for whatever reason, which I get is, is, is a pretty empty explanation, but that's, that's kind of baseball is that even great teams, you know, can't necessarily uh, actualize their potential all the time. But what, I, what I'm trying to point out with this is that every other team that has expectations of being great has. Yeah. Again, with the exception of the Twins, who don't count because that's a fake, it's a fake, uh, fake team. Yeah, yeah, I, or I, fake playoff team. Right? I, I just think it's the offensive inconsistency because I don't know what else you can point to. As you mentioned, their starting rotation is one of the deepest in all of baseball, uh, and moreover, their bullpen's been extremely effective this year. It's not like you know they have a. a, a overrepresentation of losses in one-run games. Their bullpen's been really good at protecting leads and, and locking down games that should be won. So, you know, really, I have no other explanation other than, you know, the offense has been uh, shockingly inept at times and just unable to get the job done and, and, you know, match sort of the effort that their starting pitchers are giving them on almost a nightly basis. So there is a, a positive spin to this and a negative spin to this. The negative spin is, of course... That, well, they haven't shown you, you know, at no point in the season have they looked like the best team in baseball or even, you know, the best team in their division. I don't I don't think there's a stretch where they were playing better baseball than both Baltimore and Tampa Bay at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even if they were, it's probably during one of Boston's hot streaks. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so that is tough. And, you know, I could understand if someone looked at that and was like, well, they told us who they are for 140 games and they don't have that gear. And as much as the division was the goal. Now I think the ceiling's a little lower. The other perspective on that would be, well, they haven't strung together anything. The offense hasn't been clicking at the same time as the rotation and the bullpen. Um, yes, they were very fortunate injury-wise, but then they had all of their injuries happen at once. They had three, three of their everyday guys go out at the same time. Um, and I could see someone looking at that and being like, yeah, it's felt like things haven't clicked all year and they're still in a playoff spot controlling their own destiny with 22 games to go. Um, you know, I, I get the sense from the first 15 minutes of this conversation that you lean more toward the positive perspective on that, that, hey, this hasn't been them showing us a lower ceiling. It's been them showing us a pretty high floor. Very much so, and I think that the reality of baseball is that if you get into the playoffs, anything can happen. The Seattle Mariners swept the Blue Jays in the wildcard round last year. I mean, this is, you know, small sample theater once you get to October. I think that getting in is, you know, 90% of the battle, and then, you know, winning the World Series is the next 10%. Uh, you know, their upcoming opponent, I think, is illustrative of that. They won the World Series in 2015, despite being, uh, in my mind, an inferior team to the Blue Jays, an inferior team to the New York Mets, who they ultimately beat in the World Series. Um, you know, so I, I, I do skew, I think, positive because... A, I mean, I still believe that there is more ceiling in there than they've realized this year. Um, but ultimately, you know, getting into the playoffs is is uh, what it's all about, right? That's that's the real challenge is surviving uh, the grind, uh, the marathon of six months of 162 games and being there, uh, you know, in the big dance at the end. And if they can squeak in, you know, given the strength of their rotation, I think that this team could win the World Series. They haven't demonstrated that they're on par with the Braves or the Dodgers of uh, the league, but it's small sample theater. Anything can happen. And the American League, you know, the top of the American League, at least in my estimation, doesn't look as strong as the top of the National League. Indeed. Whereas I, I think the Braves and Dodgers on merit are both 
like worlds better than the best team in the American League who, you know, metrically and record-wise is probably Baltimore. I think on paper I'd say it's Houston still. Um, but, you know, even the fact that there's debate there between those two and Tampa Bay and, you know, Seattle's hot, whatever, I, I don't think there's a cle- as clear a pecking order. So, yeah, I think there's a, a little bit of room to go on a run there. Um, okay, so... 61.3% is where Fangraphs has the odds right now of them making the playoffs. You're fairly confident, as confident as you can be that, hey, any team can make a run. Look, the 2015 Royals won the World Series without a good player on the roster. <laughs> it, it happened. We we lived through it. It's tough. Um, you just got to get there. But their odds of getting there, 61.3%. And to reset, they have 22 games left. They are half a game up. They have a four-game set coming against Texas next week, who is the team that is directly behind them. Basically, if you believe the playoff odds and say, hey, the Reds are too far out of it, it's too unlikely that they make a run right now, um, this is down to four teams for three spots between the three AL West teams and the Toronto Blue Jays for the AL West and two wildcard spots. 61.3%. Your confidence level is higher or lower than that, that they actually get in? I think it's higher. I think it's higher. Um on account of the fact that they should be getting Bo Bichette back in relatively short order. Matt Chapman shouldn't be too far behind him. That one, I, we're going to talk to Arden Zwelling about that uh, at 1130. Arden uh, caught up with Matt Chapman on this latest trip. I don't know. Arden hasn't told me what he's going to tell me later, but uh, I don't know that it's like he still hasn't grabbed a bat, mm. which is considering he hurt that finger and then played through it yeah. and then sat down again and it's been 10 days and he hasn't grabbed a bat. It's a little worrisome for me, mm-hmm. but e- anyway, they're going to get Boba Shep back. They're going to get Boba Shep back. And you know, the, the Rangers right now are absolutely free falling. They've lost four or pardon me. They've won four of their last 18 games. Uh, their starting rotation is absolutely struggling right now. Um, and you know, the blue Jays have six games remaining against the New York Yankees who aren't very good. They have, you know, uh, a whole bunch of games remaining against Boston, who isn't very strong. Like, you know, it's not the easiest schedule to to round out the regular season, but it could be worse. And moreover, they have three games now to create more separation between themselves and Texas. When they do play Texas, the Rangers will be without Adolis Garcia, who is arguably, uh, you know, one of the best run producers in the American League. Uh, So I think they're running into one of their direct opponents at the perfect time. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, though, it comes down to the fact that I still believe in this team. I believe in the strength of their rotation. I believe in the strength of their bullpen. And I still think that there's another gear to this offense uh, that they haven't discovered. And, and, you know, maybe I'm being naive because we've seen 140 games worth of, you know, underwhelming offensive performance. But, you know, I, I also still believe that, you know, forgetting the, the struggles with RISP, they're seventh in the league in WRC Plus and with a little bit more batted ball fortune with runners in scoring position in those high leverage spots, they could be a really, really, really good offensive team. So I, I still believe, and, you know, it, it's difficult to reconcile, I think, the, the expectations that we have for this team coming into the season and the reality that we've seen over the first five and a half months of the season. But ultimately, uh, I, I still believe, and maybe that's a reflection of the fact that they do have a half game lead over Texas. If they were a game and a half back, maybe I wouldn't feel so strongly, but uh, I'm still believing at this point. So, and I think that's reasonable. And, and you know, as I was coming up with that list of, hey, here are the streaks everyone's had this year. Obviously, the, the next natural thing is like, well, ha- has any team recently looked like this Blue Jays team and got it together to make a run in the playoffs? Now, there is obviously still 20, there are 22 games left for a team to go on that run. The Philadelphia Phillies last year, for example, didn't hit any gear until 
late in the season. I mean, even the 2015 Blue Jays, like all of their winning streaks were stacked in August and September. They were below 500 in July. And then they didn't lose for two <laughs> months, basically. Um, and and look, I, I know other people have pointed this out too. I do wonder if like how obscenely hot that team got has like warped all, like that's not that long ago. And that is our expectation of what a hot playoff team looks like um but there are other recent examples there are not many so in terms of teams that only went on one small streak or you know things like things like that over the last decade the only one to make a league champion to win a league championship so to make the world series that had a similar profile in terms of they just never beat the brakes off everyone the 2018 dodgers had two winning streaks of five games and that's it and they won 92 games in a kind of weaker NL West year. Uh, that was the year I think they had to play a tiebreaker game because of the the tie in the division. But they ended up going on to the World Series. They lost to Boston, but they made a, a little bit of a run there despite, you know, kind of doing what the Blue Jays have done, which is we're going to win four out of every seven games. We're going to finish at 90 wins or in their case, 92 after the uh, after the extra game. And that's enough to to get us there. Yeah, and and mind you, I mean, they ran into a buzzsaw of a Red Sox team in that year's World Series, too. That Red Sox team, I believe, won 108 games. They had the American League MVP in Mookie Betts. They had Chris Sale. Yeah, but you can't pay Mookie Betts. He, <laughs> Absolutely he's not, not. going to be good five years from 2018. you got to trade him away you for spare parts. You trade that guy for Alex Verdugo seven days a week, you know? <laughs> Um, Mookie Betts, by the way, who, if anyone has not been watching a ton of National League baseball, has just railed off, like, maybe the greatest five-week stretch like we we talk about Otani as the greatest two-way player we'll ever ever see, and Mike Trout has had some bonkers season. Mookie Betts may have just had like the best five-week stretch you could possibly have in baseball. Ronald Acuna Jr. has done something unprecedented this year in going 30-60, and he's probably going to lose the NL MVP race to Mookie Betts. It's uh I don't know that I'm there yet because I do wonder if the just bonkers stat line at the end for for Acuna uh wins out and obviously you know, there's still 22 games left here. And uh, if the Dodgers caught the Braves in the standings, maybe, but the Braves will still have the the one seed thing. And then I wonder if Freddie Freeman eats into Mookie Betts's thing a little bit. But since the start of August, he has an OPS of 1.254. That's over, over 35 games. That's I mean, that's, that was Matt Chapman in April, <laughs> right? It, it was. And Matt Chapman was, you know, hitting the ball so hard that we had to invent new statistics like, yeah. uh, like damage rate from Robert Orr over at baseball perspectives. Uh, okay. So but, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. coming back to that 2014, the San Francisco giants won the world series with 88 wins yeah. 2010. They won it with 92. So, yeah. you know, there is recent precedent for, and what were those teams built on really good high end part pitching. of the rotation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and, and a generational catcher like the Blue Jays have in Alejandro Kirk. <laughs> if you saying. only look at his numbers from the last week. Yeah, he's been great. And look, he's going to have to be. And we're, we'll talk about Kirk a little bit in the second half of the show as we go through some roster machinations and set up more specifically uh, this series this weekend and against the Texas Rangers. But, um, you know, I brought up Mookie Betts, the, the how hot he's been lately for a reason. And we talked yesterday on the show about how hot Julio Rodriguez has been. And the fact that the Mariners are actually like, if you take the Julio hot streak away from it, are a reasonable parallel for the Blue Jays. They're the top two teams in ERA. They've had good rotations and good bullpens, just kind of eh, overall offensive numbers. But Julio Rodriguez has been the best player in the American league since a little before the all-star break. And that has made a ton of difference. Mookie Betts, the Dodgers were always good and we're always going to be, you know, pretty comfortable in that division, but they've gone from, you know, being the number two in the NL West to 
I think I'd pick them over the Braves right now, even though they have a few less wins because Mookie Betts became the best player in the world. And I make those comparisons to ask you, you know, you talked about, well, Bo Bichette will be back and you you picked kind of on the, on the side of, well, this team's shown us a very high floor, not necessarily a lower ceiling. How much do you think the perception around this team would be different if even if the winning streak hadn't come, if Vlad had a heater in him somewhere, or if over these next three weeks, you know, we saw Bo Bichette do it late last season. We saw Vladimir Guerrero Jr. do it a little bit late 2021 when they made the near miss push, even though he had cooled off dramatically, he picked it back up a little bit in, in September there. Um, if one of or both of those guys were to go on a little bit of a heater here, how much do you think that would change the confidence of obviously baseball is not a sport. You know, we've got basketball on the screen here. It's not a sport where one guy can dominate the ball, play every minute and, you know, put a team on his back, but a team can certainly feel different when their best player is playing better than the 21st best offensive first baseman of baseball. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the thing is that I think fans are wondering who the offensive centerpiece of this team is. Now, I mean, it, it seems as though it's Bo Bichette, but obviously he's been absent for much of the last little while. Um, I think it would make people feel very differently. Like they could, you know, sort of throw their faith behind the fact that one of these guys, one of their big name guys is going to carry the team, is going to pick up the slack when the rest of the guys are struggling. We just haven't seen that really this year. Obviously, Matt Chapman had a sensational historic April and Bo Bichette has generally been very good whenever he's been on the field. But, you know, outside of that no one has really had you know a hot streak where they're just absolutely unconscious a la bow you know late last season so you know it, it's just i think been hard for guys uh, for fans rather to to you know identify someone who's going to be you know the 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 guy the hero the the person who who delivers when everyone else is kind of in a rut so it shouldn't be davis schneider he's fresh up from triple a and, and as much as he's been fun and i see you have a, a mustache growing yourself right now i was inspired yeah uh yeah it should not be davis schneider who is or spencer horwitz who look those are great stories and, and helpful contributions but they shouldn't be the guys you're most confident in absolutely not um and and you know frankly i think people would feel differently too if some of the other guys in the lineup were simply performing closer to their career norms to Alton Varsho, Alejandro Kirk, George Springer, right? It's it's not even that, you know, no one has sort of had this, you know, exceptional hot streak. I think it's that, you know, all season long, fans have been waiting for key guys, core pieces of this team to at least put up numbers that resemble their career marks. And that just really hasn't happened. And I think that's contributing to the frustration as well. I think everyone's just kind of wondering, you know, who is this offense built around other than Bo Bichette? And the answer is still unclear. And I think that's a disquieting feeling. Yeah, and look, guys, have had their hot streaks. George Springer's turned it around a little bit lately. Dalton Varsho had a three-week stretch where, you know, the mechanical changes seem to click. But, yeah, you look and, like, George Springer has a 104 WRC+, plus, so controlling for park factors and, and a couple of other things, just a little below league average at the dish. Whit Merrifield has cooled off to where he's exactly league average. He's basically, you know, equivalent to uh, or slightly better than the season Alejandro Kirk's had because Kirk's heated up a, a little bit of late here. Really the only guy I think you'd say is overperforming what you'd expect from them, other than the guys who came up and contributed in, you know, small roles is Brendan Belt and to a lesser extent, Kevin Kiermaier, but Kevin Kiermaier is also ninth on this team in plate appearances and has cooled off himself as well. So um, that's a tough, a tough way to go. They've gotten some nice contributions from AAA call-ups and one of those guys, maybe a couple of those guys are going to lose some playing time if, and when Bobachek comes back this weekend, which we're expecting maybe as soon as today, uh, but at some point this weekend, we're going to take a break, Jonah. We're going to go through then 
what that means for, I don't know, Mason McCoy, what it would mean for an Ernie Clement and, and things like that. Uh, we're also going to take a look at this Royal series more specifically, look ahead to the Rangers a little bit. Uh, so yeah, this was the big picture segment and now we're going to get a little nitty gritty and yeah, it's uh Hey, every game matters now. Let's take a look at the games ahead. Jonah Bierenbaum will stay with us uh, and yeah, he'll stay with us. That's it. I don't know what else I was going to say. He'll stay with us as Jay's talk plus continues on the sports radio network and sports at 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Blake Murphy, Jonah Bierenbaum of The Score at Bierenball on Twitter. Still with us here. Could have been a contender. Uh, was uh, the story of the 2015 Toronto Blue Jays, 2016 Toronto Blue Jays. In 2015, they lost to the Kansas City Royals. They'll see the Royals for three games this weekend. And boy, is this team. Look, I will still argue that this Kansas City Royals team is the same caliber as that 2015. But boy, have these teams gone in different directions since 2015. Uh, the Royals were a 500 team in 2016 and have not sniffed 500 since the blue Jays able to extend their window and kind of hit the rebuild window more quickly than Kansas city has. Yeah. My question for you is which fan base would you rather belong to? So obviously the Royals Mm. as, as we're loath to acknowledge won the world series in 2015. And since, as you just mentioned, they haven't even approximated being a competitive team. They haven't finished within 10 games of their division since they won the world series. Uh, the blue Jays, meanwhile, went through a reset towards the end of the decade, but have since reestablished themselves into a contender. Now people can debate how legitimate of a contender, but a contender, um, which fan base would you rather belong to the one that has a flag, but has since not had you know really one meaningful game of baseball played or the team that missed out on a flag in 2015 and 2016 but is now very much in the thick of things contending for one uh i would say as a fan kansas city royals uh the the flag flies forever and they were also in the world series the year prior to that so you would have had a at least like a two-year window there as someone who covers the team and is up and down with it day to day, give me the consistency and the window every, like, I don't think any Dodgers fan would trade the last decade that they've had. They only have one world series in and that it was stretch. In the shortened season. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I still kind of think that makes it harder. Like, really? I, I think it just introduces so much extra random. Like it's one thing to be like the, the Dodgers whole thing is like, well, over the last 1,782 games, 11 seasons. We've been clearly way better than everyone else. And they had to shrink that down to 60 games and an expanded postseason field, which made it more chaotic. Um, look, it's not, didn't feel good. Uh, it didn't, it didn't look like that. That season, I forget almost everything about it. But yeah, I don't think they, uh, I don't think a Dodger fan would trade like, hey, every year for 10 years, you can consider yourself a World Series contender. I guess that where the Jays fall in the middle of those two things is they haven't been considered a World Series contender every year. It's like, hey, you had one year as a maybe two years. You could consider yourself a World Series contender, a couple bad ones. And now, what, four years in a row where in the final month of the season, you're looking at the standings every day, which is still cool. It's way better than it could be. But I don't know. Is the uh, are you still thinking World Series? 
I guess, yeah, you probably have to you if have you get in. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating place. Who, which side would you pick? I'm with you. Uh, flags fly forever, and you know I've had this conversation with my father, who who takes the opposite opinion but he had the privilege of experiencing those world series runs in 92 and 93 he was at uh game six in 93 when joe carter hit the walk off off of mitch williams so he says that you know uh he he would just take the meaningful uh you know september baseball the competitive seasons over you know one title but he says that from a position of privilege having enjoyed two incredibly momentous world Series. yeah his answer is why not both yeah that's not fair (laughs) pretty much Um, uh he also texted into the show by the way and told you to shave so well uh, I think that was probably uh, he was being the mouthpiece for my mother, if I had to guess. But, <laughs> All right. Um, so this flags fly forever. Yeah. So this Royals team is not a team that will raise any flags anytime soon, other than won the Aroldis Chapman trade 2023 <laughs> uh, because Cole Raggins is pretty good. Before we look at the Royal side of things, though, uh, on the Jays side, we're expecting Bo Bichette back at some point this weekend. We're expecting updates on Matt Chapman and Danny Jansen a little later, but it doesn't sound imminent for either of those guys. Uh, the Bo Bichette return, pretty straightforward to you. McCoy Mason to AAA, McCoy Clement down. moves back to a bit of a bench role. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, against left-handed pitching, you probably have Schneider at second, Whit Merrifield in left. And against right-handed pitching, you have more options. I think you could have Schneider or Biggio uh, at third base with Witt, uh, Merrifield at second, and probably Varsho in left field. But mm-hmm. again, if you want to shelter one of Varsho or Kiermaier from a lefty, you have more options now. Now, do you, I, I, every game you have to win right now, if you're John Schneider and you're making out this lineup, look, you can't, a hot streak is going to cool off. You have to lean on your priors or, or you know, what you'd expect from a guy over the long haul. How much of this where do you land on this balancing act though right now of, Hey, Whit Merrifield's given you, you know, a longer season, more track record. Dalton Varsho has not, but he's got the defensive base running value versus David Schneider and Spencer Horowitz have the hot bats right now. Yeah. I think David Schneider has to be in the lineup every day. And I think right now there's a very easy Avenue to do that. Just play him at third, you know, righty lefty play him at third, you know, have, have Merrifield at second, uh, you know, uh, Varsho and left and just send Espinal to the bench and Biggio to the bench and they can play situationally. Uh, but it, for me, I mean, you know, uh, it, it's not just that he's, you know, the hot bat. It's that I think he just has more offensive upside than either of those other two guys who he'd be displacing in Espinal and Biggio uh, play him every day at this point. So the other question of how how often do they get in there? is injury related and it's related to Alejandro Kirk who has um, started 66 games at catcher this year. He has played just over 600 innings there. It ranks 24th in baseball by way of having Jansen and Kirk mostly healthy for the, for the larger part of the year and, you know, managing their workloads. Well, when one of them is out, they're 24th and 28th respectively in uh, innings played behind the plate. Now, part of why you want to, maintain a guy's workload and be careful of it is for longevity and big picture things and to keep both guys fresh and things like that. Um, and to keep both guys involved. You're at a point now where Tyler Heineman's your backup. He could give you a good plate appearance and draw a walk and things like that, but he is, you know, he's there for his defense and because the quality of third string catchers is just, you know, it is what it is. He's a, a fine one to have his triple a depth, but um, no one's going to make the case for him to start. How aggressive do you think the Blue Jays could get in terms of Alejandro Kirk's workload right now? Like they, they, we're looking at, let's assume Danny Jansen's not back anytime soon. They've got 10 days in a row. Uh, only two of those spots would qualify as day game after a night game when they go Friday at seven o'clock, 
Saturday at three at three o'clock. They don't have any of those weekday afternoon games. So a 10 game stretch, only two day game after night game. Yeah, I, I think they're going to be extremely aggressive. I mean, Tyler Heineman is, you know, he's he's uh, emergency depth. Like that's what he is. That's his profile. Uh, and Alejandro Kirk uh, is, is, you know, he, he was an all-star last year. He was one of the best offensive catchers in the game. Obviously he hasn't replicated that this season, but he's still leaps and leaps, uh, more valuable than Tyler Heineman. Uh, I think they have to be extremely aggressive, especially if, you know, you're still down Matt Chapman and Danny Jansen, uh, for the remainder of the regular season. Like they just can't afford to not have their optimized offensive lineup out there every day. So I think they're going to be extremely aggressive with Kirk, uh, you know, not necessarily, uh, catching him, you know, every single day, <laughs> but, you know, using the DH spot to their advantage, uh, to get Kirk in there, uh, deploying him aggressively off the bench in the event that Heine- Heineman is starting. Uh, they just can't afford to have anything less than their best offensive line there as a uh, offensive lineup out there as frequently as possible. So this is a Kansas City Royals team that steals a lot of bases. Mm-hmm. And they do that because they're the Kansas City Royals. Who cares if you get thrown out? Like you're not you're probably not gonna get a hit to score that guy from second <laughs> anyway. Uh I'm exaggerating a little bit, but this team has a three hundred OBP and a six ninety six OPS as a team. Yeah. Like they are we saw an Oakland A's team that can hit for a little bit of power this is a Kansas city Royals team that for the season has almost identical numbers, steals, uh, steals bases a little bit more. Um, if this, you look, this lineup slightly more potent than the one that won the world series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ben's over saying walking through that door, but otherwise, yeah. uh, so if you look ahead to the playoffs and I'm still curious how the new stolen base environment is going to play out in the playoffs. I wonder if managers get more conservative, even though they've been more aggressive for the most part this year. If you look at the American league playoff picture, the only playoff bound American league team that runs a lot is Tampa Bay. So maybe this is something you don't have to worry about. If you draw Minnesota or you make it to the later rounds, but how much is it on your radar? And this is not just a Kirk thing. It's happened to Heineman. It happened to Jansen at a, a lesser rate, but As a team, the Toronto Blue Jays have not done a very good job suppressing stolen bases. Um, What do you what do you think about that? I I guess this is Royals related because the Royals are going to run on them like Colorado tried to like Oakland tried to. But bigger picture, how big an issue do you think that is at the catcher position, um, given that stolen bases are up, but maybe your playoff opponents aren't going to lean on that as much, except for Tampa Bay. Yeah, I I mean, I don't necessarily see that as an indictment of Kirk and Jansen. I think that bases are stolen off the pitcher, Mm -hmm. and Toronto's pitching staff as a unit does a very poor job of controlling the running game. Like Kirk, in terms of his caught stealing above average, he's middle of the pack. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not lagging behind in that department. Uh, It's not like his pop time is terrible. It is, you know, sort of bottom third percentile, but it's not egregious. I think that his his pitchers, starters and relievers, more often than not, don't give him a chance. And I don't think that you can sort of configure your lineup uh, you know, to compensate for something that your pitchers are really responsible. Well, no, for. you and and you don't have that option no. in house, right? Like even no. Tyler Heineman, who has a really good reputation, it's more about the blocking and the framing and the game calling. It's not about having a cannon back there. Yeah. And Kirk, for the record, is 99th percentile in blocks above average. So, yeah, very good framer, too, especially with the low strike. Yeah, I mean, he, he's doing, I think, you know, a, a really fine job back there. Back there. He's done, uh, you know, I, I think he's made tremendous strides defensively throughout his major league career. It's really been continuing development for him. Um, it's just, you know... 
far too frequently he's just not given an opportunity to throw out, uh, you know, uh, attempted base stealers. And what I'll say is that with respect to the Royals, just keep them off the base paths. Keep this team that, you know, has a collective 300 OBP from getting on base. Then you don't have to worry about stolen bases. Um, okay, so this is a Royals three set. And we talked a little bit about Colin Snyder, who will start tonight earlier again. As many walks as he has strikeouts at the major league level, 591 ERA at AAA. He does have a pretty good sinker that comes in at like 96 miles an hour. But... Again, 591 AAA ERA and as many walks as strikeouts. So uh, we don't know who's starting tomorrow. And then Cole Raggins, who's one of the hottest starters in baseball right now uh, since coming over from Texas in a trade uh, and getting one start, I think, down in the minors. But before coming back up, um, you look at that, this even with acknowledging Raggins, like, the, the bats have to be going like they didn't Homer against Oakland. And I know that ballpark is weird where it suppresses offense, but is still sometimes Homer friendly yeah. depending on the weather. But like this, this, I, I know you mentioned earlier, the bats have been better over the last couple of weeks, but like you, you got to kind of see it at home and see it in this series still. Right. Absolutely. Even though Roger center has also been confoundingly mm-hmm. not that conducive to home runs this year. Uh, yeah. This is the uh, ideal matchup for the bats exploding. And I will say, I thought that they got off some good swings in Oakland and they hit some balls that I thought off the bat. Poor Vlad. I Vlad had a pair of them in one game. I know David Schneider had one too. I mean, you know, I, I do think that in a, a more um, forgiving environment, those balls probably do go out. So, okay, and the other reason you want the bats going and you want to see proof of that is that the Rangers are about to come to town for four, and for all the trouble with their bullpen, and they've had some starters with some pretty rough outings of late, that's still the number one offense in the American League. They can still hit a ton of home runs, even with Josh Young on the IL. Um, I, I guess before we get to that, we've taken a couple shots at the Royals here. How fun is it for you that it's the Rangers that the Jays are trying to take a run at here and take a bite of the, the gang reignites the rivalry? Yeah, it, it's truly tremendous. And it would just be a, another wonderful chapter if the Blue Jays could put to bed the Rangers' postseason dreams. Once again, of course, they did it in 2015. They did it in 2016. Uh, we, I mean, this organization has thoroughly posterized Texas. I think if you go on their Wikipedia page, it actually says owner, the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, and they held on to that one punch for so long. And then Tim Anderson was like, uh, Tim Anderson. Anderson and um, Jose Ramirez were like, no, no, no. This, we got is, this. this is what that should look like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was more of a fair fight. At least they squared <laughs> up as opposed to, you know, just clocking them in the face anyways. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would be delicious, uh, you know, given the history between these two teams. But ultimately, you know, just just get in like, you know, whether whether Texas manages to squeak in over Seattle or whomever, just get into the playoffs. And then, you know, uh, sort of the, the heavy lifting is done. And then it's just a matter of. Uh, the heavy lifting is done because you got the no. The the lifting just gets heavier at that point. This is like I I know you're not a gym guy, but like the progressive Thank load you. of like you get stronger, and then your reward for that is just like yeah, it just gets heavier from here. I, I don't know what those were. Progressive load. I, that's, that's Arden's on later. He's gonna oh perfect. He's gonna want to. He's gonna bench press me. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. So three against the Royals while Texas is playing Oakland. Yeah. So you can't. I don't think you can reasonably assume that you're going to make up a game at all. So let's say you're, you're heading into that series with Texas half a game up. Does three out of four leave you pretty confident heading into then the last 15 games of the season? I would say so. Like, I don't think you can reasonably expect to be more confident than, you know, what that uh, would, would mean for the standings implications wise. Um, 
But, you know, uh, look at, look at you know, th- th- this franchise's past. Look at the 87 Blue Jays, right? They were on the precipice of a playoff spot, and then they absolutely collapsed down the stretch. Uh, you know, stranger things have happened. And, you know, when the margins are so thin, 10 games, 15 games is a, is a tremendous sample. It, it can really uh, uh, have a, a profound impact on what happens to your season. So, yeah, I mean, I think that you probably would feel pretty confident if you managed to take three or four from them after, you know, presumably taking at least two of three from Kansas City. But... Who knows? You know, it's uh, they've left themselves no margin for error. So uh, it's, you know, you don't want to be too confident. And there is a little bit still of, well, Toronto has six against Tampa, but who knows if those games are relevant to Tampa. Tampa is comfortably in the top wildcard spot, still kind of close enough to Baltimore to play for it. But by that final week of the season, maybe not. New York has turned it around a little bit, but their goal is, I think, to finish 500. So they don't have the first sub 500 team in, you know, 1891. Yeah, whatever whatever this that is. Um, And then. Houston, Texas, and Seattle play each other a little bit still. So you could ostensibly either make up on both teams because they split games or one team loses a bunch and you, you either way, those games have a loser, which is a positive for Toronto. Now, when you, we've mostly focused this discussion on catching Texas because they are out of a playoff spot right now and they have had a disaster of a last four or five weeks. When you look at Seattle and Houston, Houston's been similar to the Jays in that they've just kind of been good all year they haven't run away with the division as maybe expected they haven't really had any downturns they've just been like solidly good all the way across seattle has been the inverse of texas where they've been unbelievably hot the last six weeks or so do you think it's like are you confident that it's texas on the fringes here and texas that like obviously we're talking about that because texas is here next as well but when you look at the al west how do you feel about those three teams well also i mean houston just mopped the floor with texas too like that was a historic fashion yeah i mean i've maintained all along that houston is the more complete team and although the best team in the al i think so too and i don't think that they demonstrated that for the first five months of the season but things are finally coming together um you know it's an incredibly deep lineup they continue to develop pitching at such an astonishing rate they keep losing stars and replacing them internally it's really unbelievable uh it's it's a team annoying is what it is yeah and then they go out and they reacquire justin verlander like they're so well built for a deep postseason run uh they're a really scary team and i just think that they're trending in a very different direction. Like Texas is dealing with injuries now. You know, Nathan Evaldi missed an extended period. He comes back. He's completely ineffective. They just lost, you know, one of the key cogs in their lineup to a knee injury in Adolis Garcia. So And you know, jo- they have Josh Young, and Josh out Young too, yeah. and, and not a, you know, no imminent update on Josh Young either. Yeah, they did just call up Evan Carter, who's one of, you know, yeah. the, the more highly touted uh, prospects in baseball to replace Garcia. But, you know, they're, they're entrusting now, you know, a, a key role in a pennant race to a kid who's never played a big league game. So, you know, it's a team that's just in a tough spot, uh, and you know, the losses continue to mount. Max Scherzer has been kind of hit and miss since they acquired him. Um, you know, things just aren't really going their way, and uh, Houston is is playing extremely good baseball. Um, and uh, to me, they just look like the best team. And you know, a three game cushion separating them between Texas is significant at this juncture in the season. Um, for me, I, I still think that the Astros are, are going to win the division, and it's going to be between uh, the Mariners and the Rangers for uh, one of those wild card spots. All right, so Jays will get a going against Kansas City tonight with Yusei Kikuchi on the mound, which means Yusei Kikuchi will start one of these Rangers games. We don't have probables yet for Saturday and Sunday for Toronto, but basically everyone's going to start against the Rangers except whoever starts Sunday. Yusei Kikuchi on the hill tonight, coming off to... Not even, yeah, two blips, I, I think we can call it. He what al- was that altitude, though? So I'm and, inclined and to with errors it. behind him. Yep. 
so, you know, six runs in his last start, but only two of those ended up earned in, in a weird environment where your breaking pitches don't really break the same and balls fly out or whatever. Although he didn't allow a home run in that game. He's still only allowed one home run in like his last nine starts, I it's think. been exceptional. Yeah. What do you, where are you with Yusei Kikuchi in terms of your overall confidence, not just in a game like tonight against Kansas City, but having played his way from the guy who was clearly the name you moved to the bullpen because he'd have value in the bullpen and he was your, you know, on merit number five starter at one point to a guy that I think you're probably considering matchup dependence starting in a wild card game. Yeah, absolutely. He has just utterly reinvented himself this year by adding that curveball. And, you know, it's September and he is second among Blue Jay starters in both ERA and FIP, which is just unimaginable if you had told that to me. Especially the FIP side. He was a walks and home runs, but I can strike everyone out guy. So and now FIP he has the lowest him. walk rate of his career and the lowest home run rate of his career over a full season. It's just been exceptional how that curveball has completely transformed his ability to get right-handed hitters out before. If right-handed hitters saw spin they knew it was the slider and that pitch got absolutely obliterated now he throws another breaking ball with a similar trajectory still throws it down and into righties but it has a different different spin profile a different path and they're totally off balance he's managed to neutralize right-handed hitters very effectively this year and i think that that ability to manage contact has made him more aggressive in the zone the zone rates way up and so the walks are down so if he does give up home runs now overwhelmingly they're solo shots but as you mentioned he's been much better at suppressing them of late uh, you just can't say enough about how he has reinvented himself this year i think that's a testament to the analytics team uh to the pitching coaches uh because you know they saw a guy with great stuff who was just maybe uh a tweak or a quirk away from you know becoming a really effective starter and they did that in getting him uh to implement a curveball to use it you know almost a fifth of the time and all three of his pitches now of his primary pitches his fastball his slider and his curve are all plus pitches according to baseball savants he's throwing strikes you can't say enough about him uh you know he's been absolutely tremendous exceeded all expectations and you would think that against the royals lineup that is Terrible, regardless of matchup, <laughs> but particularly bad against left-handed pitching. He should have a fine outing tonight, and um, you know, I, I, I just—it's it, a marvel. And I, I owe him a mea culpa because I, I was, I was clamoring for the Blue Jays to add a fifth starter to move Kikuchi to the pen, make him the second bullpen lefty coming into the season. Uh, he has totally proven me wrong. Which, uh, hey. You're not alone, and he's proven he's proven a lot of people wrong, and, and he's probably proven some stuff to his to himself in, in the process because you know where he was last year compared to where he is now is a completely different pitcher and a guy who you know I don't want to ascribe everything to the psychological, but a guy to me who looks way more confident and comfortable in you know it, it's, it was almost the Robbie Ray thing at some points where you want to shake him and be like. You are a lefty who throws 96 and has a nasty slider. Just attack. Yeah. And now he's like, yeah, but the curveball and the changeup too. And then also I'll attack a lot. It's been a lot of fun. This has been a lot of fun. Jonah Bierenbaum of The Score at Bierenball on Twitter. Thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Enjoy this series. Thanks for having me, buddy. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll take a, a longer look at Cole Raggins, who will start on Sunday. He has been maybe the biggest second half turnaround in baseball this year. If we are not including guys like Mookie Betts and Julio Rodriguez, who were already very, very good before they just took it to another level. Uh, you also get to poke fun at the Rangers when you talk about Cole Raggins, because they traded him and another prospect for a couple months of mediocre performance from Meraldis Chapman. Uh, Esteban Rivera for, of Fangraphs wrote about this the other day he's going to join us we'll talk some uh yankees turnaround as well uh well he also had a great piece about ronald acuna and how acuna's base stealing prowess has actually helped the guys hitting behind him in the lineup get a lot more fastballs to hit 
it's an interesting look for a Blue Jays team that doesn't steal a lot of bases and certainly doesn't have one guy like that who's a threat on the bases. Uh, Esteban Rivera joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues. We're also going to give away some tickets in the next segment on Sportsnet 360 and the Sportsnet Radio Network. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, thanks to Jonah Bierenbaum for spending an hour with us in studio. Make sure you're checking out his good stuff at Bierenball on Twitter. We're going to give away tickets to Monday's Jays Rangers game a little later in this segment. So stick around with us. Uh, that is Monday's game on Sunday. The Blue Jays will have to try to hit off of Cole Raggins, who if you looked at his baseball reference or fan graphs page or his baseball card a couple of months ago, you would have been like, awesome. A lefty, the Jays can get their righty heavy lineup in there against and maybe do some damage, get the bats feeling good before that Ranger series. Nah, Cole Raggins has turned it around in a way we rarely see pitchers do in season. And it's not just batted ball luck and things like that. It's not just noise. It's the first time the Kansas City Royals have helped fix a pitcher in quite some time. Esteban Rivera of Fangraphs wrote about just that this week. He joins us now. Esteban, good morning. How are you, man? Hey, Blake. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So uh, the Cole Raggins turnaround, you called it when you tweeted the story out that you said it's going to go down as one of the best trades in Royals history. They also got an 18-year-old Dominican prospect in the deal, but for a couple months of Araldis Chapman, they picked up a guy who at the time looked like a mediocre bullpen arm or maybe a, a fringy starter down the line. And he has quickly turned into looking like a future front of the rotation guy. Uh, I guess at a high level, my question is what the hell? <laughs> I know, right? It's bizarre when you see a guy who's like known for just being a change up dude who sits low to mid nineties, suddenly just break out and, be the excellent potentially ace type pitcher that he is and the way he's done it is it's his entire profile has completely changed he and Eno Saris wrote about this at the athletic but he went to tread athletics in the offseason which is a driveline player dev type of place and remade his mechanics so he went from throwing 92 to 93 ish topping I think 95 96 and to sitting 96 topping 101 and he brought that velo into spring training he brought it in when he was with the rangers so he he had that new piece of his profile but not he still couldn't get lefties out he just didn't have a legit offering to do that he said that lefties were still adjusting their barrel to the cutter that he was throwing and could just flick it for singles or even doubles in the gap and so he ended up adding that gyro slider that he was consulting with the folks at tread at when he came to KC, I think it was after his first start. And then since then it's been pretty much his primary pitch against lefties. And he's just continued on throwing that filthy changeup that he's got against righties. And since then, I mean, you see that you've seen how it's played out. He's got a one, five, one ERA in KC, which is just crazy. It's it's pretty wild because I think, you know, people who are not paying attention, a ton of attention to the Kansas City Royals this year, which uh, I think 
they would be forgiven for uh, are going to look maybe down the line and see the change in 2022 to 2023 profile for Cole Raggins. And it'll look like, wow, four and 4.3 miles an hour of average velocity. That's the the change right there. Um, but like you said, this is a, a bit of a mid season change in his secondary offerings. And, and with respect to that gyro slider that he throws there, there was, you know, the, the way you set it up in your fan piece is interesting because I think there are a couple other guys who have kind of come to this realization with their cutter that, Hey, a cutter is sometimes effective, but if you don't have an effective cutter, if you tweak it a little bit, it could become a decent slider. Now, some guys trade one out for the other entirely, but what he seems to have done is, you know, if a cutter is, if his cutter was midway between a cutter and a slider, he just kind of split. It. it was like, well, I'll throw my cutter a little harder and I'll throw this slider that that's just a little different. Um, what do you make a, of that change? And what other guys who maybe work with a cutter or a less effective tight slider can learn from what Raggins has been able to do? Yeah. So two things to say about that. It's actually a pretty traditional idea that somebody would throw two different shapes of the same pitch. Mm-hmm. I think CC Sabathia for, is a good example with that. He threw that horizontal slider, but he also had the cutter that was a little bit harder. Chris Sale's another good example. I know he's got one of the nastiest sliders of all time, but you can see in his pitch movement charts over the years that it's two different shapes, and he just controls what he wants to do with it, and he slightly alters the grip and something different happens. And in the case of Raggins, which I'm still trying to figure out, is that the right pronunciation or not? I have no clue. <laughs> but he he was the type of guy that had the natural movement or motor patterns to adapt that cutter into a little bit bigger of a slider. And that's something that's really important for pitch design is you have to pay attention to what your strengths already are and try and make changes according to that. And the reason why he was able to do it so quickly was because he has familiar at familiarity with throwing similar type pitches. So it's sort of the thing that you can pip, pick up in a pen one day. You change your grip around a little bit, and suddenly you're commanding a 87, 88-mile-per-hour slider that is potentially the best pitch you have <laughs> when a week ago you couldn't even get lefties out. So now we have Cole Raggins, who against lefties will still lead with the fastball, but he's going to go to that slider as his number two pitch against lefties now, and he'll mix the curveball in a little bit. Now the Jays don't have against the lefty like this. They're probably not going to play a ton of lefties. They're they're going to have one, maybe two in the lineup, depending on, you know, who's available for them on Sunday. So maybe they don't worry as much about that, but the trick with Raggins has been, like you said, off the top, he's always been able to get righties out because his change up is so nasty instead of going fastball slider curveball against lefties he'll go fastball change up curveball against righties that's a change up that has a 169 batting average and 181 slugging against it on the year 181 slugging over this many changeups is ridiculous um, what is it about ragged's change up that makes it so special yeah so he's one of those guys where because of the arm slot and his hand orientation he just has natural run on his fastball and change up and that's the kind of dude that he can just pick up a changeup, get the right grip on it, and no matter what, the pitch is going to run more than expected because of the release point he's throwing from. So with a running changeup like that, what a hitter is expecting to see is a guy with a little bit of a, a sidearm angle or a three-quarter angle, but with Reagan's the way that he releases the ball just naturally out of his hand, 
it's un, it's an unexpected like point of view for the hitter, and it breaks more than expected, and it causes whiffs, it causes ground balls, it causes like pretty bad takes too. <laughs> um, and he's he's been able to use that a lot, even when he was throwing his mid nineties fastball, which is pretty remarkable. It's a really really good pitch. He's thrown it more since he got to KC. And I'm actually interested to see if he begins to use it a little more against lefties. And then on the contrary, if he begins to use the slider a little more against righties, I think he's sort of still tinkering with what his final pitch mix might be. Yeah. And you know, the, the traditional thought that, uh, pitches that that break across the zone are, are tougher for opposite or tougher to use against opposite handed hitters. So you might not want to use the slider as a lefty against righties as much, but if you found something with it and it plays off of one of your other pitches, well, like, you know, where his changeup has some run and his changeup is almost identical in velocity to the slider. Maybe it's something he could experiment with there uh, a little bit. So a, an interesting part of reading Eno's piece and then your kind of follow up to, to Eno's piece I think you called it a companion piece or something like that. Um, is that it sounds like Raggins has done some of these changes in consultation with thread, even though he was in season and got traded. What do you make of the Royals? And, and look, maybe there's a little bit of humility there with the Royals being like, you know what? We haven't really done the best from pitch design and, and pitcher development. Um, what do you make of them kind of giving him the freedom to, consult with something outside the organization or, or work on things, you know, more player player driven than the team looking at him and being like, Hey, this is what we want you to do. I think it makes a ton of sense. And I, I slightly touched on this in my piece, but if you're a team that struggles to get pitchers better, um, whether that be over a long period of time, like through the minor leagues or through the first couple of years of their big league career, or even just a short period of time with like slight, pitch changes uh, like changing pitch grips or changing locations to get better movement profiles, whatever, whatever it is, I think it's a smart move on their part to go, to go to Riggins and be like, Hey, obviously something that you were doing with tread worked, you gained four ticks on your fastball, continue to talk to them, obviously do it in consultation with us to make sure we're all on the same page. And we have, like the player in the forefront of our minds, but we just want you to get better. Like it's, it's a pretty simple concept. And if I'm, if I remember correctly, I think the Royals have actually brought in some workers, whether that be analysts or coaches from really uh, good pitching development organizations like the Rays and guardians. So it makes sense that they would be like, yeah, definitely talk to tread and let's make this work. Nice. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And obviously teams would prefer to be doing that in-house and identifying that stuff themselves. But the important thing at the end of the day is a guy gets better. So uh, nice to see the Royals kind of empowering that from the Texas Rangers side of things, Esteban, they gave up Cole Raggins and another kind of lottery ticket, 18 year old down in the Dominican system prospect for Araldis Chapman. Uh, Chapman hasn't been particularly great for Texas. They continue to have one of the worst bullpens among any of the potentially playoff bound teams. Um, look, you have to, address bullpen needs and maybe Chapman would be better from here. But what do, what do you, 
make of it from the Rangers perspective in that, you know, I, I don't want to do the, you got to call a shot in the air, right? Like you, you take a three pointer, you, you don't wait until it goes in to say if it was a good three or not. And Raggins wasn't this guy in Texas, but the fact that they gave up a piece who had this in him and had just also shown you four miles an hour of velocity jump, like clearly a guy with some developmental capacity. If you, if you teach him right, that they paid that kind of a price for a reliever at the deadline and then weirdly, like, even if you criticize that, I think you could also criticize they still didn't do enough to address the bullpen at the deadline. Where do you make of kind of the the lose-lose side of this for the Rangers? Yeah, I I don't want to be too harsh, but it feels like borderline malpractice. <laughs> um, like you said, he, he clearly had some developmental meat on the bone. So he proved that he can get better over the course of a few months with one major part of pitching development who's to say that he can't add that next pitch or who's to say that he can't alter one of the pitches that he's currently throwing to make that leap against left-handed hitters it's the foresight is a little troublesome but at the same time the rangers have shown that they're really good at developing hitters not really sure that they've proven the pitching side of things. Um, if I was them, I would be shaking, <laughs> especially with a pitcher that they're unlikely to even bring back. Um, but I guess that's just the way this sport works out sometimes, huh? Yeah, I guess so. And look, the Toronto Blue Jays are fine with it because they're chasing the Texas Rangers down uh, here. Before we get to the AL wildcard picture, I wanted to ask you about another piece you wrote of Fangraphs this week, Esteban. Uh, you wrote about Ronald Acuna Jr. and his stole his gaudy stolen base totals and then what that's done for the hitters who hit behind him in the lineup. So, you know, we talk sometimes about lineup protection or, you know, the value of a stolen base to get a guy from first into scoring position. But what you looked at was, hey, is there also an impact where this guy steals so many bases that pitchers are like, we got to hammer the zone with fastballs because that gives our catcher a little bit better of a chance to throw this guy out. And and maybe I can be a little quicker to the mound with my fastball or whatever. Um, And the data is not consistent across the board, but you did find that Acuna, at least with some of the hitters who regularly hit behind him is giving them a little bit of a boost. Yeah, there there's no question. And this is one of the things when I was playing that I thought as a catcher, I need a fastball here to try and get this guy stealing one, because the pitcher's a little slow to the plate and two, because we don't, we don't want him on second base. Uh, we play on turf ground ball scores him easy. And then from a base running perspective, I thought if I could just command some of the attention of the pitcher here, whatever mental space that takes up in his head is not, it's, it's taken away from his focus on the batter, right? So just intuitively speaking, you would expect that to alter the pitcher in some way, whether that be pitch mix or just mentally. And so I, I know that there's been a little bit of public discourse about this on the internet. I was like, why don't I just go take a look at this? And I was actually pretty surprised how drastic it was for Matt Olson and Ossie Albies in particular. Um, but at the same time, man, if he's, he's attempted over 70 bases on the year and the, the infielders are paying attention to him, the catcher's paying attention to him, the pitcher's paying attention to him. It, it really just makes sense. So it's always good to see when you have like one of those old school mindsets that it's actually confirmed by the data rather than it being one of those things. Well, uh, we've sort of just been lying about this for four decades. Uh, Esteban, I, I have to ask. So 
I, I can find your offensive stats from when you played NCAA ball. And I know you could steal a base, especially <laughs> by the standards of a catcher, but how were you controlling the run? How were you at throwing guys out? Uh, that was probably the best part of my <laughs> baseball game for my entire life. If I'm being honest. <laughs> Uh, okay, so with Acuna, or, you know, you put yourself in the perspective of you behind the plate. Um, where is, obviously, Acuna is having this historic stolen base season. I don't think pitchers are, you know, adjusting too, too much if a guy is like a 15 stolen base threat or, or something like that. But where do you think, you know, and there's not a specific number necessarily, but what is a reasonable, like, break-even point of like, okay, after this amount of stolen base success, a pitcher is going to be aware of this guy. Like, I just wonder stolen base aggression is up around the league and based on stolen base success rates, I, I, and the run environment, I think we could make a good case that teams should be even more aggressive. And then I wonder if your research into this and your experience of a cat as a catcher says, yeah, you know what? In addition to those break even point numbers, I think this effect on pitchers team should be even a little more aggressive with their best guys. It's it's really hard to look at that from a macro point of yeah. view. Um, I I think it's so context dependent that it would be tough to extrapolate outwards to be like, hey, this is the this is the end all be all limit here where we're doing we're doing A or we're doing B. But in the case of I'll bring it back to Atlanta. In in their case, when you're working with hitters who are, I think that their average WRC plus is like 123 or 124. When that's the case, man, I would be super hesitant to fill up the zone with fastballs or to even alter my delivery. I might just say, yeah, you can have the bag because Matt Olson's at the plate. He <laughs> might, he's going to have 50 homers on the year, and I don't want to just serve him up a heater just because you might get to second. Um, maybe in the playoffs, that's a little bit different because every single run, every single base matters much, much more. But if Personally, if I was the pitcher, if I was the catcher, I would have trouble just straying from the game plan. And that actually played out. It's played out a little bit with Austin Riley. He's he's still getting a fair share of breaking balls, but I don't know. It's it's a really really tough question to answer. So the other tough question to answer, and we won't know until we get there, is, hey, the stolen base environment around baseball has changed significantly this year. Teams are way more aggressive. We're seeing stolen base team and individual totals we haven't seen in a long time. How is that going to look in the playoffs? And I think that, you know, why that's hard is, well, this is a new environment, but also managers have... Some managers get more conservative in those spots and then some managers get more aggressive in those spots because every 90 feet matters so much. If we look at the playoff landscape, you know, Tampa Bay in the American League is the only playoff bound team that steals a ton of bases. But in the NL, both Cincinnati or Arizona or the Cubs could potentially sneak in. Atlanta steals a decent number of bases. Philadelphia does. Given the way this year's played out on the bases, do you think that aggression is going to carry over into the playoffs, you know, on, on balance? I personally think that there might even be an uptick. Mm -hmm. I know that in the past there's been relievers throw more often in the playoffs, right? Like they throw, they throw more innings. Mm -hmm. And you know what that means is they throw more breaking balls and breaking balls are tough to throw on. They are an 88 mile per hour slider dipping down towards your right foot. It's not an easy pitch to throw on. So I think that you're going to see some guys picking their spots really, really well because there's more scouting. There's just more information. So you're just better equipped to know when to run, to know when you're going to have a couple tick advantage because a different pitch is being thrown. 
And like you said, um, putting pressure on the pitchers and taking up like some mental capacity there, it, it matters more in the playoffs. So if you see Acuna being just as aggressive, that's not surprising, but maybe some more borderline guys, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. in the 10 to 15 stolen base range that are pretty efficient, will just pick their spots and be like, Hey, I know that there's a breaker coming here. Let me just challenge them and see what happens. I'm looking forward to it. That that could add a little uh, a little extra juice to some of these games, especially with some of these potential uh, National League wild card teams uh, over in the AL. Asbon, I was we're running out of time, so I was going to ask you about Jason Dominguez, but the Yankees have to get a couple games over 500 before we bring that up on the show. I guess is what I'm <laughs> determining now. Uh, when you look at the wild card race in the AL, though, um, Houston currently sitting atop the AL West, but basically it's a four team race between Houston, Texas, and Seattle, as well as the Blue Jays for the AL West crown and the two final final wildcard spots in the American league. Uh, how does that race look to you from afar? I don't know. I think the question is, can the Rangers overcome these bad vibes, like just bad vibes all around? And of course a bad bullpen, but man, when something goes this poorly, so, so quickly, I just worry that any team can overcome that. And I'm not really sure. I'm not completely clued in on the Boba injury, but if they're able to get him back to hitting at full capacity and they can get him back in the lineup, I probably bet on them overcoming the Rangers for that last spot. Um, right now, like you said, Yankees aren't a factor in my opinion. And I don't even know if the Red Sox are a factor. But the interesting thing is that those three teams, the Red Sox, Rangers, and Jays, all have a bunch of teams against each other, if I'm remembering correctly. I was taking a look at that yesterday. So there could be some unexpected changes there because of the head-to-head matchups. But if I'm if I'm betting on it, probably taking to taking the Jays, leaning towards them. Yeah, that would be. I, I mean, we're expecting Bobuchet back at some point this weekend, so you'd then have him in the lineup for that those four pivotal Rangers game. So that should be, uh, should be a lot of fun to watch And hopefully the Jays can get to Cole Raggins a little bit on Sunday uh, for anyone who <laughs> wants to check out a little bit more on that. Again, Esteban Rivera's piece up at Fangraphs this week uh, was a tremendous look at a, a in-season turnaround that we almost never see from pitchers. Cole Raggins will see him on Sunday. Esteban, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Blake. Always a pleasure coming on. Esteban Rivera of Fangraphs of Pinstripe Alley as well. If you want to look at a little Yankee stuff, but you don't have to do that. They're only 500. They uh, Jason Dominguez can give fun quotes and then do the ET thing in, during roll call. But uh, yeah, not relevant to our wild card discussions. The Texas Rangers are, and they're here for four games next week. So let's give you some tickets to that game. Uh, yesterday we gave away a prize pack that included tickets and some gear. We're going to do that again, Monday and Tuesday. Uh, we're going to do it right now. So here's how you do it. You wait for me to say the code word. You text it into 590-590. You win tickets to Monday's game as well as uh, some team swag involved in that prize pack. These are pretty big games, and you can be down there for them. Uh, to enter for a chance to win, text today's code word ROMANO to 590-590. Again, it's romano if you missed it yesterday, it's too late now, but the code word was Schneider, whether Davis, John, or Hot Dog. Uh, today, it could be Jordan Romano, Ray Romano, whichever Romano you want, but text that to 590-590. We'll let you know uh, a little later if you won tickets and some team swag to Monday's game. And if you don't win, well, keep an ear out Monday and Tuesday. We'll give away more tickets, but also uh, tickets are still available. So take a look. It should be a really fun couple nights down at Rogers center. The crowds have been, I mean, even with the Jays kind of up and down and not playing the best baseball at home, the crowds have been awesome 
all season long. Jay's second in the American League behind only the Yankees in average attendance, and that's with the capacity of Rogers Center decreasing a little bit this year uh, with all the renovations. So always a blast down there, but these four against the Rangers, and yeah, this weekend against the Royals too, but come on, four head-to-head with the team you're battling with for the final playoff spot. Those are going to feel like playoff games Monday through Thursday. Uh, hope you won with the code word Romano to 590-590. If you didn't, we'll give away more on Monday and more on Tuesday. Right now, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk to someone who talked to some of the injured Blue Jays recently. Arden Zwelling was in Oakland for that series, got a chance to talk to Bo Bichette and Matt Chapman about their injuries and what their timeline to a return may look like. Arden Zwelling joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Last time we talked to our next guest, we talked a lot about working out. We talked about Mitchell Hooper, the world's strongest man, and what he might be able to do to help Yusei Kikuchi. Well, we talked to Mitchell Hooper since then. Uh, so joining us now, we could say the preferred Blue Jays reporter of the world's strongest man. It's Arden Zwelling. Arden, how are you, man? Hey, good. I, I got to be honest with you. I haven't listened to it yet. Been a little busy, but it's in my queue. I'm looking forward to listening to your interview with him. It sounded like it was pretty good. Yeah, it was fun. It was, uh, you know, it's any time with something like that, the hardest balance. And you know this from when you come on with me is, you know, hey, how do I keep this Jays enough instead of just going down a 40-minute path asking him about exercise science and, and niche stuff like that? But he did shout you out. He was impressed with your uh, your knowledge of the stuff in general, but also like your knowledge of him and his, uh, his path and everything. So uh, he, he did pat you on the back a little bit. Well, that's wicked to hear, man. He's got like such a diverse background um, athletically, like not only from oh, a yeah. competition standpoint, but also from a sports science standpoint, as, as I'm sure you're aware, like a really impressive academic career as well as a uh, athletic career. So like there's definitely a lot of different things we could talk to him about. Well, one of the things that I asked him about, and not specific to Bo Bichette because he hadn't seen his medicals, but hey, how might, if you're coming back from a knee injury and you're overcompensating, how might that lead to a quad injury? Arden, I know you caught up with Bo Bichette a little bit when the Jays were on the road recently. Last we heard was, hey, probably this weekend, but we don't know specifically. Uh, wh- wh- how was Bo feeling wh- when you caught up with him last? And did you get into it all the relationship between that that patellar injury and then the quad tightness he was dealing with didn't get into it on the ladder and i don't know that there really would be any way to definitively mm-hmm. prove that or empirically demonstrate it so like i just think the focus right now for bo is getting back on the field as as soon as possible he's trying to push that process and drive that process really aggressively and i think that you know the blue jays is always with uh, a competitor like bo or having to say okay like let's just take it easy let's have a rest day today like okay let's just like make sure everything is good to go before we get you back out there um but also you also you have the additional pressure of the standings being what they are and the remaining schedule being what it is and a 85 to 90 percent Bo bichette being a really impactful player even if he isn't uh, 100 percent so i think that 
the most likely scenario is that Bo gets one more day here today and, and then gets activated either on Saturday or Sunday. Uh, you know, it was kind of described as an aggressive return if he came back on Friday. But if there ever was a time to be aggressive, this might just be it. So Bo was in working out at Rogers Center on Thursday. We're going to find out soon how that went and, and when the Blue Jays are going to try to get him back into the lineup. Uh, but I am expecting it to be this weekend. So that is welcome news for John Schneider. Yeah, that's welcome news for John Schneider and pretty much everyone else because there's, a, I guess, for everyone except maybe Mason McCoy because there's obviously a, you know, a cascading effect to the, the way he helps the entire lineup flow and you know having good at-bats at the top of that lineup. Um, the other injured player who you caught up with a little bit is Matt Chapman. Now, Matt Chapman had, um, you know, to, to circle back to the jokes with Mitchell Hooper, uh, yeah, he, we'd all, we've all jammed our, our finger in a dumbbell rack at one point or another. Uh, Chapman's was bad enough that he missed a couple days, tried to play through it, then they ultimately had to shut him down. It's now been 10 days since Chapman hit the IL, and at last update publicly, he still wasn't using that hand really. He wasn't throwing baseballs, he wasn't gripping a bat, certainly not to the extent of dry swings or batting practice or anything like that. Arden, did this level of a break, like needing this much time down, did that catch Matt Chapman off guard? Has this thing lingered or worsened to a level that maybe Chapman didn't expect when it happened initially? Well, I think that the experience prior this year was pretty instructive as to how you know, what it would look like if Chapman just had given it a few days and then had tried to come back, right? Like, if you don't get all that swelling out and all that inflammation out and you come back and you swing about a bunch and throw balls, you know, 80 miles per hour across the diamond a bunch, uh, you're only going to worsen that and your symptoms are going to get worse and baseball schedule is not going to relent and you're just going to feel like crap and probably perform like crap and end up back on the IL as Chapman did so the the approach now is like let's get this thing right like let's get the swelling out let's get the inflammation out so that you're not in a position where we're having to IL you again or you're having to perform at much less than than your best or compete at much less than your best so when I talked to Matt in Oakland on I guess it would have been Wednesday uh, I mean, that, that swelling inflammation was still present, and he was you know, pretty frustrated. Uh, he said that this sucks. I don't like it. I'm not happy. I'm not having a good time. Um, you know, he hasn't swung a bat since he hit the IL, which is, you know, probably the biggest issue here because whenever he is able to grip a bat again and swing it again, there is going to be a ramp-up process there, and it's going to take some time for him to just recondition himself to, you know, swinging the way that he needs to in the majors. And the other thing he hasn't done is he hasn't thrown that full intensity. He's done a bit of light throwing, but when he's taking ground balls before games, I mean, he's catching them in his glove, obviously, and then just kind of shoveling them into a bucket of balls. Like, he is not throwing hard across the diamond. He'll do a little bit of light throwing on the side, but that's that. So until he's able to really throw at full intensity and then swing at that, his return, unfortunately, is is not imminent. So it's a frustrating situation for him. But guys like him, guys like Bo Bichette, I mean, they're still trying to find ways to contribute, if, even if they're not on the field. Like, neither of those guys had to go on that trip uh, on the West Coast. Neither of them had to get on that plane and change time zones. They weren't eligible to come off the IL 
on that trip, but both of them wanted to be around it, be around the environment, help their teammates, support their teammates. Uh, I was talking to David Schneider about that a couple of days ago, about how Bo Bichette's been in his ear, in between plate appearances, on the bench, about his approach, about his footwork on the infield, about what he's seeing from opposition pitchers. Uh, and Schneider told me that that's something that was really valuable for him to have when his playing time here has increased with those guys out of the lineup. Yeah, I'd imagine. I mean, look, we, we see Bobichet in the dugout. We heard him on the broadcast. Yeah, that's like having another uh, another hitting coach in there, even if sometimes it does seem a little like granky-ish in the like, well, why don't you just go out there and do that? I can do it. Why, why don't you just hit spin on the very edge of the strike zone to stay alive with two strikes? But it's good to have that. Um, so no, no real updates on Eric Swanson or, or Danny Jansen. Danny Jansen was seeing a specialist yesterday in Pennsylvania. I'd imagine we get an update from John Schneider pregame today. Eric Swanson threw in Toronto this week. I'd imagine there's a small update coming from Schneider today as well. On the Danny Jansen side of thing, though, Arden, I, I know, I can't remember if it was you or someone else uh, on the broadcast talking in this Oakland series about, hey, Dalton Varsho might, you know, strap the gear on and, and just practice a little bit, just in case behind the plate. Is that... Is there a scenario in which, like, probably not to start, but, like, there are a couple subs late in a game and you need to sell out to win a game and the shuffling ends up where Varsho actually is behind the plate for an inning? 100%. And the Blue Jays have been a couple of, uh, you know, swings of fate from that happening, like really, really close to that happening at, at several times this season. And yeah, just even on this last road trip, I don't know that Varsha was, you know, caught a bullpen or caught live pitching, but he has been doing work with catcher's gear on. So I assume that that would be just taking balls off of the pitching machine and, and you know, just working, just making sure that he's familiar with catching, which he hasn't done since last season. So like he is ready for that if and when it does happen. The the one thing that Dalton has consistently like reinforced to me whenever I've talked to him about it is that it's not going to look pretty and it's not going to be good defensively. The the receiving is not going to be crisp. Um, you know, he might box one. He might uh, let a ball in the dirt in front of him get by him. You know, throwing to the bases would be something that he hasn't done in a long time. And surely the opposition is going to try to take advantage of him if, if he's behind there in, in a really um, in a really tight spot. But yeah, this is something that's been on the table for the Blue Jays with Danny Jansen out because there are spots where you're going to want to pinch hit for Tyler Heineman and there are spots where you're going to want to pinch run for Alejandro Kirk. Uh, so it, like, I honestly would not be surprised to see it happen at some point between now and the end of the regular season because I'm not expecting Danny Jansen to be back between now and the end of the regular season. It's pretty cut and dry how long fractures take to heal and there just isn't enough time there. Especially at that position where, I mean, him especially is he's taking a beating this year, but yeah, you, you, you don't want to put that finger at, at risk of re-injury there. And look, maybe Varsho's being a, a little modest. He did throw 33% of the base runners the last two seasons when he was behind the plate, but small sample and different rule set and a little more in the mix there. Um, on the other side of that question, look, we know Tyler Heineman's going to start a couple of games here. They've shown us that when he starts a game, 
hey, around the sixth or seventh inning is when they look at pinch hitting Alejandro Kirk for him. Um, so he's not going to, you know, get a ton, a ton of playing time by backup catcher standards. The Jays here have a 10 game stretch coming out of an off day and then two off days around six game stretches the rest of the way. There also aren't a ton of um, day games after night games. They, I believe they only have three of those left. Just how far could they push Alejandro Kirk's workload here? I think that at this point in the season and the playoff race being what it is, you have to push them beyond your own comfort zone just because of what you have been getting offensively lately because, you know, Tyler Heidman, like, capable catcher, absolutely, like, strong defensive resume, but you need to prioritize offense right now, really. And, and Alejandro Kirk has been giving you a little bit more offensively lately. Now the, the issue with that is that in recent seasons – his workload and his offense have been somewhat tied together. And when the workload increases, typically the power has decreased for one reason or another. So you certainly want to be cautious with that. But yeah, I think that he needs to be in five times a week, maybe even six or you know five and pinch hitting late in the game sort of deal because it is just so important that you are scoring runs right now because I think as the Blue Jays feel really confident about you starting pitching and feel confident that you know the bullpen struggles lately just a little bit of a blip the arms down there are still really good there's a lot of weirdness in there when you get Kevin Smith going down after a Trevor Richards change up and it just like magically floats out of the ballpark so you feel good about your run prevention you need to prioritize your run creation right now and Alejandro Kirk can be a part of that now we've seen the Jays a lot this year, you know, give guys rotating off days or DH days as part of load management and just keeping the eye on the whole 162. But I mentioned it, 10 games in between off days here. That's that's a lot of games, but not a, it's not 17 and 17. And then two six game only stretches. Um, you you kind of just said it there with Kirk with the focus on offense. But are are we officially at a point of the season where every single day it's the best lineup possible unless you're actually dealing with something? I think it has to be, Blake, yeah. because these, these games, the rest of the layer, are so important. What you got 22 left, and realistically, like, you're trying to get to 90 wins. So what, you need 13 more, mm-hmm. right? So you need to go 13 and 9. Like, you think about it, if you want to get to 90 wins, you only have nine more losses yep. to play with, and you're playing teams like the Rays and the Yankees down the stretch. The Yankees have been hot lately. The Rays are one of the better teams in the American League. Boston plays you tough. They're coming into Rogers Center next weekend, and then Texas going to have all the motivation in the world this week when they come in. So, yeah, I mean, this is the point in the season where, um, you know, the, the workload management, the scheduled off days, you know, all those sort of things take a back seat to how do we put ourselves in the best possible position to win here tonight. That impacts your pitching strategy as well in terms of when you list starters from games, how far you push relievers. We saw Jordan Romano go one-plus uh, in Oakland, I guess it was, the day after he had pitched. In Colorado, like that was really interesting. On a back-to-back, and the Blue Jays chose to push him one plus, and he ends up with a 23-pitch save. Wouldn't be surprised if we see some more of those extended Jordan Romano outings, and to that point, extended Jordan Hicks outings as well. Yeah, it's uh, hey, you you're not saving the bullets for for much at this point if you don't make the playoffs. So there are three off days remaining over these last 22 as well. One of them was yesterday. The Jays haven't listed their their probable pitchers for Saturday and Sunday yet. If they stay on turn, it would be Kikuchi, Gosman, Barrios. If you stayed on turn all the way through, and those off days just give everyone uniformly one extra day off. You just keep rotating. Kevin Gosman would line up to start either game one. 
162 if you needed that win or game one of the wild card, if you could go kind of bullpen day. Um, do you anticipate or, or do you think they'd consider you know, juggling the, this rotation order a little bit. Let's say, hey, Barrios on Sunday would mean he doesn't pitch against the Rangers. We'd really like to have him pitch against the Rangers instead of, you know, Chris Bassett, who might struggle a little bit more with low and Semyon. Or you're coming out of the next off day and looking at the Yankees and Rays segment, and you're like, huh, we'd really, you know, like to optimize against the Rays. Do you see them doing that? Or do you think they just kind of roll the five guys in order, use the extra off days for rest? I think if you're looking to optimize anything, it's the final week of the season and particularly the final weekend because that's where this is headed, where it's going to be right down to honestly probably that final series against the Rays. Certainly that second last series against the Yankees in the final week is going to be really important too. So I think you're trying to line things up for that and then having your ducks in a row where, as you mentioned, you could have Kevin Gosman start a game 162 if you absolutely have to win that to get in. Or you could push them back and have them start game one of, of wildcard series, which would be ideal as well. So I think that's what you're looking at targeting and optimizing. And it looks like the Blue Jays have that lined up the way they would like it to be right now. So I expect that they just kind of continue and keep things rolling and don't really juggle anything to get matchups in order against the Rangers. I mean, yes, Chris Bassett has not done great against lefties this year. Yes, the Rangers are an explosive offense, but Bassett is coming off of back-to-back eight-inning outings in which he has been exceptional. Mm -hmm. So if you want to look at just current form and very recent results, I don't know who in this rotation you would rather be throwing right now than Chris Bassett. Yeah, I I just used him as an example of, hey, something you could be thinking. He's obviously been a a tremendous last last couple times through. And hey, maybe a little bit to be said for two. Let's see how this holds up against a a really, really good offense that has some some tough lefties in there because he's been... uh, He's been pretty phenomenal the last couple of times out. So, you know, in a, a hypothetical game 162, Arden, where the Jays have a playoff spot locked up and you don't start Kevin Gosman that spot, you hold him for the wild card. A couple of weeks ago, I would have said, huh, you know what? Let's have Alec Manoa back up from AAA to start that last game. Uh, that does not sound likely anymore. Um, what have you heard about? You know, we talked to Ben Nicholson Smith a little bit about it yesterday that that he's going to seek a, a further opinion on, on some of the the physical ailments that he's been dealing with. Even though uh, he is optioned to AAA, not on the injured list. Um, certainly, calendar wise, I think we're at a point at this point where we we can't expect Alec Manoa to pitch for this team again this year. So maybe this is more of an off season conversation. But what have you heard on, on the Manoa front, and what do you make of how these last couple of weeks have gone? Yeah, I don't expect Alex Manoa to pitch at any level for the rest of the season, to be honest with you, just because of where things are at. Like, you laid it out there last time that he was off a mound, and that includes side sessions. That includes bullpen. It's not like he's been throwing on the side. I mean, the last time he was off a mound was August 10th against the Cleveland Guardians. So we're now talking about a month removed from when he was last off the mound. So for him to get back to that point to be in a game, the ramp-up process, there just isn't enough season remaining and that's putting aside the fact that as you said and you know as Ben said on your show yesterday I mean he's going off for further opinion on some of the physical ailments that that he's been experiencing I mean this happened when he was first optioned in August where he reported to the Blue Jays that he was dealing with some some quad stuff um, some back stuff some knee stuff they took the time to 
do the testing, the imaging, um, you know, all, all the kinds of ways that they have of measuring that stuff and getting to the bottom of what's going on there. And there wasn't an injury discovered, or at least there wasn't something discovered that requires an extensive rehabilitation or revision or anything like that. It was just, yeah, you're bagged up, but there isn't, you know, something, there isn't anything structural here that, that needs a repair. So the, the, expect, the expectation of that time was that Alec Manoa would continue pitching or at least would ramp back up and get back off a mound. I mean, Manoa wanted to do that. The Blue Jays wanted him to do that. But it seems like some of those symptoms that he was experiencing have persisted. So they're going to continue to try to get to the bottom of this and see what's going on with him physically. And, yeah, I just think that he's running out of time, to, out of time honestly, to, to get back into a game this year. So it does become about 2024 and about how you put him in the best position physically, mentally, delivery-wise, conditioning-wise, all of the above, holistically, to get back to the pitcher who he's been at the big league level. And that is going to be the process, I think, going forward, is just what does the short, medium, and long-term future look like for Alec Manoa with this organization and with you know getting back to getting his career back to where it was not that long ago when he was the opening day starter. Well, maybe what that'll mean is uh, the first career start for Bowden Francis in game 162 then, which I think you and I would both uh, both get a kick out of, even though, uh, you know, Alec Manoa w- was part of the plan. And, and this is a, a weird situation to enter the offseason looking at. Uh, Arden, so it's the Royals this weekend. Texas is playing against Oakland. I, I don't think the Jays can anticipate making up a game this weekend. So it's po- it's likely that they'll head into this Texas series next week within a game and playing four against the team that's closest to them in the standings. It's as much as control your own destiny right now as you can get short of playing, you know, the last six games of the season against Texas or something like that. Uh, when you look at what has happened to Texas over the last month and Conversely, what has happened to Seattle to kind of help them surge past them? Um, how much has your opinion of that chain of that team changed overall? And you know, like a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Jays and Mariners. It's now Jays and Rangers. Do you think that is the right way to be thinking about it, or, or do you still see enough in this Rangers team, even with the Adelise Garcia injury, that they could you know turn things back around and be the Rangers we saw earlier in the year at some point? They need to sort out their run prevention. Yeah. This is a big deal because even throughout this skid, they've still been having games where they're regularly putting up five, six, seven runs. So, I mean, it's still an explosive offense. It's still a, a Seager and a Simeon. And yeah, you know, losing a Garcia is going to hurt, but it is still like just a very good run producing team. Uh, the problem is their bullpen has been an absolute disaster. And they've had some like really atypical outings from like a, a Scherzer or, you know, Evaldi when he came off of the, the IL the other day. I mean, they just had really struggled to, to pitch a defense. So that's what they need to get sorted out. If that is continuing, when they come into Rogers Center next week, the Blue Jays absolutely need to take advantage of it. I mean, the minimum in that series for the Blue Jays is three wins because that's what they need to secure the tiebreaker against the Rangers. And this is a year where I believe the tiebreakers are going to be very, very important. Like I said, I think this is all coming down to the final week, if not the final weekend. And it's possible that Seattle drops back into that discussion as well. Um, as things are, you know, currently situated, I do think the Blue Jays and Rangers will be right there, um, likely with not much space separating them in the standing. So if you can gain that tiebreaker, it's like gaining another game, essentially. And if you give up that tiebreaker, it's like giving up 
another game and just making the hill you have to uh, succumb um, or you have to climb, like overcome that much taller. So three or four next week has to be the absolute minimum for the Blue Jays. It's okay if you split it like standings wise, but you really want that tiebreaker. So you have to win three. Yeah, you, you'd really uh, you'd really hope so. And hey, that last week of the season, you're going to be on the radio call for those games. So that'll be uh, that'll be a lot of fun for you. You'll be doing the sideline reporting on the TV side this weekend. So appreciate you taking the time out. I know you put a lot of prep into those. Uh, enjoy this weekend series. I'm sure we'll bug you again during the Rangers series. On day one of the Rugby World Cup, no less. No, I mean, wow. And on the, the so third to happening. last day of the FIBA World Cup, surely you were up watching Canada at 4.30 a.m. FIBA is pretty far down my list of priorities right now. Rugby World Cup, pretty high up, honestly. Looking forward to New Zealand and France this afternoon. All right. Well, enjoy it, man. Uh, I will check that out as well. Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet, of Sportsnet.ca. He'll be on the sidelines uh, for this series. So uh, along with Dan Schulman, who's back in the booth uh, doing double duty with Canada. And uh, I think Buck Martinez. Not sure if it's Buck or Joe. Um, and then, yeah, Arden's got the the radio call alongside Ben Wagner for those last two series of the season. So that should be a lot of fun before that Ranger series. I know we've done a little bit of looking ahead to that one. That's kind of what we do on a Friday show anyway, but it's also the Kansas city Royals who are the second worst team in baseball and Cole Raggins fun aside, the blue Jays should be anticipating doing some damage in this series. They'll see Colin Snyder tonight. He'll be opposite. You Kikuchi Snyder. He of the ERA of almost six, in AAA, he's never made a major league start. When he's been in the majors, he's walked nearly as many batters as he's struck out. What you're looking for with him, though, is a sinker that comes in at about 96. He can be a little spotty with the location on it. He pairs a slider with it. The slider's kind of his number one pitch, and then he mixes in the, the straight fastball and the sinker. But uh, the sinker would be the one thing that if you're looking at these fringy guys that have given the Blue Jays trouble in the past, it's one type of fastball that they locate well and can do, uh, you know, can limit you with a little bit. And the one thing Mil- uh, Snyder can do with his is generate ground ball. So keep an eye on that. But this is a guy and a bullpen. The Blue Jays should be able to get to. It's a lineup. They should be able to limit, especially with Yusei Kikuchi on the mound. Yes, he's coming off of one where the defense and course field effects did him in a little bit. And one before that, where he was a little shaky. We've still seen more than enough from Yusei Kikuchi to be pretty confident in what that's going to look like. Blair and Barker will be with you five to seven to set that one up further. They'll also have Jay's talk for you post game. Thanks to Jonah Bierenbaum, Esteban Rivera, and Arden Zwelling for joining us today. Thanks to Nick, Lance, and Jennifer behind the glass. Uh, Brent Gunning's next. I'm going to stick around with him to talk a little Canada basketball for a bit. We'll talk to you on Monday.